thing is, it's it because it's not like a super exciting scene. It's not a big scene. It's not a major acting scene. It's one of those. But it, that little scene to, is so consistent with the character. It's so well done, and it's the writing is invisible. Hello, and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today, we're going to talk about a specific episode of Better Call Saul. Yes, a specific scene in Better Call Saul. That's correct, yes. Yes. As always, uh, if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at The Story Toolkit, uh, and we have the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com. Uh, with all the episodes and where you can email us direct with any suggestions for episodes and any criticisms. Although now that I say it, save your criticisms, please, for the iTunes reviews. <laughs> we want as many one stars as possible. Uh, we accept anything <laughs> one star or above. It's true. Okay, um, so uh, let's get into it. Better Call Saul, people, again... You should be watching Better Call Saul. Is this, this now the third episode we've done on Better Call Saul? Yes. Okay. It's, it should be worth pointing out how many episodes we've done on Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul. <laughs> should express just how well done these shows are. And it's not that we're, well, not that we're really treading the same material each time. Well, there are all these different things that the shows both do so well that yeah. are worth talking about. Yeah, uh, to me it's, it's, the, it's the kind of thing where it's just like, it's the standard. It's just the standard. Yeah. And Better Call Saul doesn't get as much love as Breaking Bad because it's simply not as exciting. Mm. I mean, it's not, not meant to be. It's not, you know, Saul or Jimmy McGill is not doing a heist or an, it's nothing like that. It's it's much more internal. It's much more about the inner conscience of these characters. It's much closer to a novel, um, but it's just stunning. What I would say before we move on for the listeners is of course there are spoilers but these aren't really like spoiler spoilers I feel like we you can listen to this episode if you haven't seen um, Better Call Saul and still appreciate yeah. because we're focusing on one particular scene yeah. um, I, uh, you don't need to go away and watch any no, if but, you haven't done so already yeah but I still think um, we you still should. think that you know Saul is just excellent you want good yeah. TV it doesn't get much better than Saul um so you better call Saul. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about one episode of season three. Uh, it's the third episode of season three, Sunk Costs. Um, and there's a specific scene in it we want to talk about. Uh, and it's about the character of Mike, Mike Ehrmantraut, who is pretty much everyone's <laughs> favourite character from Breaking Bad, if you so really he, think about it. Yeah. Every, everyone loved Mike. He first appears, is it last episode of season two? Yes, the very last episode of season two, he shows up because, okay, here's where we do get into spoilers for Breaking Bad. Um, So, but then, anyway, so... For Breaking uh, Bad. For Breaking Bad, yeah. So at the end of season two, Jesse's girlfriend, Jane, dies from an overdose. She vomits in bed and chokes on her own vomit and dies. And Jesse wakes up and he has to deal with it. So he calls his lawyer, Saul Goodman, which, of course, Better Call Saul is about. And Saul sends Mike. Now, originally, Saul was supposed to show up and deal with this situation. But Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul, wasn't free. So they did a bunch of auditions to to get someone in as Saul's cleaner. 
that's really how it... Yeah, I'm not making this up. Wow. And Vince Gilligan loved Jonathan Banks from a show called Wise Guys, I believe. And he saw his audition and went, that's the Wise Guys guy. So they just hired him like that, okay? So th- that was the last episode of season two. So he shows up for the one scene. He does this one scene and he is amazing in this one scene, yeah. uh, Jonathan Banks. And that's it. And they had a whole season hiatus, right? To get ready for the next season. And they decided Mike is a main character. They didn't want Jonathan Banks to go. They felt that this was an important character that they needed. And so they this started is, building yeah. Mike. So, And this uh, is another example of Breaking Bad just adjusting as they go along. Yeah, just Im- sort of almost improvising. Yeah. If you can call like months of planning, <laughs> yeah. improvising. I mean, but, they knew how the ending was coming about, it came about, but things like like Jesse, yeah. for example. But basically, it's the famous story. It's, it's, it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, the way they did long form because essentially what they did is they did the old Mel Brooks technique uh, Mel Brooks said this to Gene Wilder when Gene Wilder wrote Young Frankenstein and he said you know I want you to help me make this Mel Brooks yeah sure here's how it's going to work I'm going to get a sledgehammer and hit everything and anything that stays standing we keep <laughs> right and it's just like they create you know they create this very elaborate uh, storyline for Breaking Bad and as they go through they get rid of anything that isn't absolutely integral so Jesse being killed in the end of season one is not integral so he doesn't die right the only thing that's integral is Walt has to become Scarface, right? Yeah. He has to become Heisenberg. That's the integral thing. Everything else pretty much didn't matter to them. So they were happy to invent new characters, remove characters, change things around, do things, so long as that arc... So that's why they couldn't get rid of the family, right? Because if you get rid of the family, his turn doesn't mean much, Yeah. etc., right? So that's how they built it, right? So they come up with this amazing character of Mike, and they're like, okay, we're going to keep Mike. Uh, Gus, you know, obviously Giancarlo Esposito was so good as Gus, so they keep it, right? So that's how Mike gets created. Yeah. And Mike becomes this amazing character that they get to a point where they realize in order for Walt to take out Gus, Mike can't be on the playing field. But they didn't kill Mike, right? They have him shot in Mexico, and he's in a, uh, Gus's hospital down in Mexico getting the bullet removed, so he's not in Albuquerque, when Walt makes his final move, and that's why Mike is around for season five. Yeah, and Mike's around for season five, and they draw that storyline to a close. Um, and that's that's the character of Mike, and everyone loves Mike. And every time I say, you know, you should watch Better Call Saul, people are go, yeah, I'm interested, but meh, meh. And it's like Mike's in it, <laughs> Gus is in it. Like that's the hook of the show. Yeah. Uh, strangely enough, it's it's funny because people go, Better Call Saul's very slow. Mike and Gus don't really start getting into it until the end of season one. Mm. And season two, they're still building. And now three, they're a much bigger deal. Um, but that's the hook for people. If you want to hook someone, if you want to... On better call Saul. Yeah, then. that's the hook. And then you don't realise... The thing about Saul's character, at least, is um, how far Saul is from Jimmy McGill. The distance between them is enormous. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because with Mike being the focus today, so Mike in yeah. season four and five of Breaking Bad, yes. you see him as just this cold, he, yep, smart, yep. Like he's a he, 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 to all intents and purposes, he's a contract killer. Like he's that ruthless, right? He he in season three he advocates killing Jesse. Yep. To Walt, no more half measures, Walter. Yes. Right? Uh, he advocates killing Jesse. Uh, he intends to kill Walt, 
Yeah. At the end of season three. Um, he He's about to do it. He's, he? about, he's just about to do it. And then Walter, at the last moment, manages to get out of it, right? In the, in the true Breaking Bad brilliance of just, yeah. how do you get out of that scene? Well, Walt has 20 seconds, but we have two weeks. So let's spend two weeks trying to solve that, right? <laughs> um, and so the characters just seem intelligent and amazing. But um, uh, Mike, uh, so he advocates killing Jesse. He has very little compassion for Jane's death. If you remember, yeah. Jesse's shaking, messed up, and he just smacks him around the back of the head. Says, yeah. repeat after me, right? Um, he starts to really care for Jesse, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, but there's a but um, at first um, he tells Gus that Jesse's a problem because Jesse. Uh, if you remember, there's a scene where uh, Mike uh, uh, Jesse's having constant parties at his place and he doesn't care, and a guy steals all of his money. Yeah. And they find the guy, bring him back, bound and gagged, uh, you know, blindfold on him, and uh, they say here's your money back and Jesse's like okay cool takes the money walks up and he's like is that it kid and he's like oh what you want me to do beg for the guy's life well, I don't care do what you want you're not going to kill him you know how I know because you blindfolded him so I don't care do whatever you want and he just goes up and then Mike just goes to Gus and goes the kid's becoming a problem he doesn't care uh, he doesn't care about being caught this is going to go wrong and they can't get rid of Jesse because if they get rid of Jesse they get, they lose Walt and then the whole shipment the whole thing shuts down so Gus comes up with the plan what if we get Jesse what if we use Jesse is that what um, uh, precedes that great episode where Mike takes Jesse all around it makes him think he's a hero points. yeah by the way I love the the pickup points yes yeah, I mean they're, they're in this episode we're going to talk about a better call Saul yes yeah there right. is a pickup point in this episode or a drop off point a right? drop off point but yeah. yeah yeah I know exactly what you mean yeah so um, okay well yeah so Mike in this episode uh, he takes Jesse and Jesse sorry, the point I was just oh no. sorry this episode yeah so yeah so back. he yeah. takes he takes Jesse and he's driving Jesse um, into the desert and Walt thinks that they're going to kill Jesse Jesse thinks he's about to get killed and Mike just goes to the middle of the desert, <laughs> pulls the, sweeps some um, like dirt off this wooden uh, plank, pulls the plank back, reaches down, picks up a bag, it's filled with money, puts it in the car, and he looks at Jesse, and Jesse's like, you know, you know, fight or flight mode, and he's just like, kid, I got six more of these to do, and a lot of driving in between. I'd like to be back before dark. Get in, right? And so they're doing all these drop-off points. And um, uh, at the end, uh, some people, Mike's gone to do another pickup and uh, there's some people that look like they're about to rob Mike. So Jesse takes the car, drives the car, smashes up their car and escapes, Mm. circles back. And Mike's like calling up for another lift as he's walking home and he picks up Mike and he goes, Mike, you know, I'm sorry. I had to do this thing like that. It's like, well done, kid. And he hasn't let Jesse smoke in the car the whole day. And Jesse's about to light up because he's nervous and he goes, Okay, kid, line up. You earned it. Like that. And he tells Gus, hey, so the kid thinks he's a hero. And what's interesting is Mike genuinely starts to have affection for Jesse. Jesse genuinely has affection for Mike because there's a bit where Jesse saves them a huge amount of time because Jesse does, does the job properly. Hmm. That's that's the big thing. They think Jesse's a junkie. They think he's this. They have no respect for him. But when they take him on the thing, the thing that Gus and Mike realize is he's incredibly loyal. He's actually really smart and competent because he helps them get the meth back from the meth heads really quickly. Tucker, Tucker, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, he he actually stands up and does the right thing when he drives the car away and protects Mike and everything. Um, so he he actually does it, and they realize that it Jesse's useful. 
they can actually use Jesse. Walt, they can't use. Walt's too arrogant. Walt's too egocentric, and he's got terminal illness. Right? There's no way they can. They can use Jesse. But so, so the point here is Mike versus where he starts off. Exactly. So this is how we see Mike build, and then to, you know, in the season five, he wants to kill Lydia. Yeah. Several times, right? Um, and all this stuff. Mike is this kind of guy. He's this killer, right? In season one of Better Call Saul, he's a parking attendant. He's a retired cop and he's a parking attendant and we, he does nothing. And it's funny because we know who Mike is, right? And he is just this guy who's like, you haven't stamped the ticket properly, Jimmy, right? Like Jimmy tries to leave the parking place for, for less money than he's supposed to be paying because he hasn't stamped the ticket properly. And it's like, oh, c- come on, just let me off. And like Mike's like, no, don't stamp the ticket. Like that, he's the ultimate like bureaucratic nightmare parking. Like he's a character you'd expect to see in Curb Your Enthusiasm that designed just to annoy Larry David. Like that's the type of person Mike is, right? Five episodes into Better Call Saul, there's an episode called Five O, which is the backstory of how Mike ends up as a parking attendant because he used to be a cop, and his son got shot. On the on duty, and it turns out he got shot by two other corrupt cops, and so on. And we realised what how Mike was involved in all this. Are you about he, to talk about one of the big scenes? Yeah, this is okay. one. This is the first. Well, just before we. Okay. I just wanted to introduce this small segment of the episode, so the listeners can track sort of what we're doing here. So, oh, to, okay. yeah, to properly outline Mike in Saul, that's going to take us through the three big scenes that Mike gets. Yeah. Um, and this is the first one. Yeah. So the first one. So the big scene, the one that everyone went, wow, Mike's back. Mike is sitting down, talking to his daughter-in-law, explaining to his daughter-in-law what really happened. Because there's police involved now from Philadelphia. Um, and uh, the investigation into what happened to his old partners who are now dead as well. And why Mike is in Albuquerque. It's all coming up. And she's starting to think that her husband, Mike's son, Maddie, uh, was corrupt. He was on the take. And he explains he wasn't. Everyone else was, but not his son. And that because his son wasn't on the take, they didn't trust him. And that's why they got him killed. The police got him killed, right? These these cops got him killed. And he's trying to explain. Uh, his son came to him saying, you know, they, want, they expect me to take money. What am I supposed to do? And Mike said to him, take the money so they know you're okay. Do what you want with the money, whatever, but you've got to do it. And so Maddie took the money because he told him to. And then they killed him anyway because he didn't take it without hesitating, right? So they didn't trust him because he didn't take it without hesitating, so they killed him anyway. And so Mike is just racked with this guilt that he got his son killed over nothing for no reason and he made him debase himself before getting killed. At least if he'd been killed while not on the take, that would have been something. Mm. But he actually went on the take because of him and still got killed, right? And so that's why Mike killed those cops and fled Philadelphia, right? This is the backstory. And he's sitting there and Jonathan Banks is amazing and he's got this great scene and he plays the scene beautifully and he's crying. And we've never seen Mike do this. Right? We go, wow. Mike is such a beautiful character. We're in more empathy with him than we were before, right? All this. This is Mike in Better Call Saul versus the Mike I just described in Breaking Bad who basically is a cold killer who loves just his granddaughter and no one else okay 
now we see Mike and we see Mike as this absolute family man, this loving father, loving grandfather. And there's something beautiful about how he has this relationship with his daughter-in-law. Hmm. Right? He's a genuinely emotional, loving person. Right? And then he starts doing the Walt thing, which is he starts taking somewhat illegal jobs in order to pay help pay for his family. Hmm. Okay? But uh, so the types of jobs he does, he does a bodyguard thing. Okay. This is the episode. This is his episode. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, Pimento. The episode's called. Yeah. And this gets the big scene that everyone loves Mike for. It's the first time we see Mike doing anything gangstery. Okay, because we know he can do it. So we've been waiting to see it for like eight episodes. We finally see it. And this is a scene where he asks. He knows a guy, uh, a vet, who is in line with the criminal underground, and he asks the guy, "Hey." What jobs are there? And he goes, like, for your skill set, there's loads of things. But you won't do a lot of things. It's like, there's a bodyguard thing. It's like, I'll do the bodyguard thing, right? Because Mike will not do, like, certain things, right? So here's the bodyguard scene. I love this. This guy shows up to do a body... uh, (laughs) He's like the terrible version of Walter White. He's just useless, nerd-type person from Big Bang Theory. Useless guy. He's got some pharmaceuticals that he's going to sell to... A criminal we've met already, but Mike hasn't. But we've seen him. He's threatened to kill Jimmy already. He works for Tuco. A guy called Nacho Ignacio, who, by the way, is someone that Saul references in his first appearance in Breaking Bad. So we know there's something coming from that. It's really great. But anyway, so we know Nacho's a dangerous criminal. Mike is on this case. There's three bodyguards. They're being paid, uh, I think, 1500 each. Okay? No, sorry. Being paid 1500 in total. Okay? 500 each, three of them. One of them is like seven foot tall, this mountain of a man. The other one is, what, six, over six feet tall? Yeah. Uh, And he's like a crazy militia survivalist guy covered in guns. And then you got Mike. Okay. And the guy with the militia thing, Mike's like, you know, five foot. Mike's holding a brown paper bag. Five foot six. He's holding a brown paper bag, old guy, bald, you know, like that's it. And the guy's like, okay, so I'm carrying this piece and that piece. What are you carrying? It's like the mountain man's like, yeah, I'm carrying this. Like, okay, cool. It's like, what are you carrying? Because I'm I'm not carrying anything. It's like, no, what do you carry? It's like, no sandwich. He goes, okay, fine. You don't want to tell me? Don't be a jerk. It's like, I told you what I'm carrying. You didn't bring a gun? Like that. And so the guy shows up and then the this militia guy tells the guy, hey, I have an idea. How about you get ditch grandpa here? And the two of us, we split it $750 each. He didn't even bring a gun. It's like, is it true you didn't bring a gun? It's like, I didn't think I'd need one. And it's just like, what, what are you doing? It's like, I've got these guns all over. It's like, well, if I need a gun, I'll borrow one of his. <laughs> He's just like, oh yeah, how are you going to get it? It's like, I guess I'll take it from you. And it's just this brilliant scene where he takes the gun from the guy. He beats the shit out of him, takes his guns, throws them in the ca- trash. And as the guy's on the floor gasping for bread, he's throwing them in the trash. He looks at the mountain man and he goes, you want one of the guns? And the mountain man saying nothing pegs it just runs <laughs> off and it's like okay i'm doing this on my own i get the full 1500 right they go there and they have the deal the deal goes really well everything's fine mike lays down the law it works brilliantly nacho walks off done right and it's like how come you knew and he's like listen kid you're getting a lot of you're getting a lot more than your 1500 should have got you right it's like i did my research this guy he works with this crew and yet he's doing this by the side which means he doesn't want this to go down badly because he's doing it on the on the quiet, so blah, 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 blah. He wants this to go well, 
Okay, so there shouldn't be any problem. That's why I didn't need a gun, etc. He's explaining, go, wow, Mike is just this amazing. It's a brilliant scene, brilliant sequence. It's one of the, and it's this is a storyline that comes back. It's wonderful. It involves Nacho. Um, and it's excellent. Just superb. And uh, and Mike keeps doing more of these little um, criminal activities that aren't really, there's no, nothing really horrible in it. He just stands there, does, is a bodyguard follows a guy, whatever. That's it. Nacho realises how good Mike is. And he wants Mike to do something for him. He wants Mike to kill Tuco. And Mike refuses to kill Tuco. He he goes, like, your real problem is not that Tuco's alive. Your real problem is you need Tuco gone, and you also need to not have to keep a secret. Because if I kill him, you have to keep the secret of who killed him. Right? And they're going to be looking for the killer. So we need another way out. And so he comes up with a whole plan, which is this excellent scene where he gets Tuco to beat him up in front of cops, and uh, Tuco gets arrested and put in jail, and that solves the issue, and so on. It's excellent. It's really well done. But the point is, Nacho goes, you went to a lot of hassle to not kill the guy. Okay? My point being, who Mike is versus who he ends up. Yeah. Right? Still won't kill people. Now, what happens is, um, Mike however, starts getting uh, a bit annoyed because in this process with Nacho, he expl- he he, um, he his face gets known to Tuco's family, Hector Salamanca, which is the guy with the bell in Breaking Bad, right? He gets known to them. And Hector threatens Mike's family so that he recants his testimony so Tuco doesn't go to prison. Okay? And this really aggravates Mike that they he said that Hector threatens his family. So, what does he do? He robs, <laughs> he robs Hector. What he does is he gets one of his trucks that ha- carried the cocaine to and from Mexico, and he takes it out, takes out the driver, everything. Doesn't kill anyone, just takes it out and expects the police to come along, find the thing, take the truck, everything. But what really happens, he doesn't know this. This is his plan. He's bound and gagged the driver. The, the truck is broken down on the middle of the thing, filled with drugs. Okay? So his plan is, I leave it in that situation. Uh, I've taken all the money, everything like that. Leave it, so it looks like a robbery. Leave it in that situation. Cops find it. Cops take down the thing. Cop investigation. That's it, right? However, it doesn't go the way he plans. Because he looks in the papers and he doesn't hear anything about it. It's like, how come? How come there's no mention of the papers? And he sees Nacho. And Nacho is like, Nacho has worked out Mike's behind it. And he goes, you know, does the guy know that you did the driver? Did he see you? He's like, no. He's like, this can't get back to me. He's like, no. Because Nacho wasn't involved. But Nacho knows that if they find out Mike and Nacho know each other, they're both dead. Okay? So Nacho's like, no, no, it's fine. So he convinces Nacho it's okay. But he goes, how come it wasn't in the papers? And he goes, well, a good Samaritan came along and he found the guy bound and gagged like he left him and he undid it and the guy called us and we came and we cleaned it up so the police never found out about it. And he goes, and the good Samaritan? He's dead in the desert somewhere. So Mike now is really angry because he's basically got an innocent person killed. Okay? So Mike now has this plan. He wants to hurt Hector Salamanca. Okay? And he intends to kill Hector Salamanca. He intends to shoot him dead. And he's in the middle of the desert with a sniper rifle, the sniper rifle he got originally to kill Tuco before he changed his mind, and he's going to shoot Hector Salamanca. 
And then he sees a note on his car that says don't. And he tracks down the person who wrote down the don't. It turns out to be Gus. And Gus says to him, listen, you can't kill Hector. But if you want to do to him what you did before with the truck, that's okay. And so this is where we get to the scene we want to talk about in sunk costs. Yeah, we just skipped over the gas cap scene though. That was, was the, that, the th- oh the third, the third one. Yes, you're right. So the third big famous scene that everyone loves that we've talked about. We've I think, talked about it. So is the gas cap? It. Yeah, the gas cap scene. So when he sees the note that says "Don't," how does Mike find out it's Gus? He takes the car and he tears apart the car because no one could have known he was in the middle of the desert. No one could have found him to put the note "Don't" on his car. He tears it apart. He can't find the tracking system anywhere. And then he realizes that the tracking system is inside the gas cap that you use to, you know, to to close the petrol tank. So he finds the bug in there. He then does this amazing series of things where he gets an exact replica of the bug. He drains the bug. okay, so that they're going to come and replace the bug. And then he puts another bug into the gas canister that's working. okay. He replaces the dra- he drains one, puts another one in that's exactly the same but works. Puts that in to his gas canister. So when someone comes and replaces the gas cap, they've put one in that works in his car, but they've taken out one that works that they think doesn't work. So he can follow them. He then follows them to Los Poyos Hermanos, and he's trying to find out who they, their drop is, but it's not. He doesn't realize it's Gus. They then realize that he's following them, so they make him wait in the middle of the desert with the gas cap and everything that he planted on them. And that's when Gus meets him and goes, "Listen, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but uh, I have plans for Hector. So you know you can't do what you're doing. And we know that they're going to work together, these two. So mm-hmm. it's going to work great. But he says, "But you can still you can rob another truck." And so now we get to the other scene, which is with Gus's blessing. He's going to mess up Hector's truck. Okay. So that's pretty much, you know, I guess it's still like, still, he's. You can he's, tell how excited you are by the show because. Yeah, Mike's what, just so what? good because Mike, Mike has less far to go than Saul. Yeah. But where he's got to go, it's almost like he's got, to, he's got to really cross a chasm between I'll kill someone for revenge, justice, but to I'll kill someone because I got paid to. He yeah. still isn't that guy. You know, there's a there's a scene in Breaking Bad where he's looking for Walt and Jesse, and uh, he goes up to Saul and he goes, "Where's Jesse, Saul?" And he goes, "Look, Mike, I can't tell you. If I tell you, then you know you can't trust me." He goes, "Saul, don't make me break your legs." I can't understand Mike saying that to Jimmy because mm. he's calling him Saul. He's not calling him Jimmy, mm. right? I can't I can't see that relate that relationship of that pathetic Jimmy. Lying on the floor with the massage thing, no scruples, nothing. Mike, no scruples, nothing. I, I can't see how these two characters get there. And it's just so exciting to watch because they're slowly getting there. Anyway, so so this episode, Sunk Costs. Okay. The episode opens and it does that thing Breaking Bad does sometimes, which is the cryptic opening of an image. And you don't really understand why. The image is two tr- uh, sneakers are wrapped around like a telegraph telephone wire. Yeah. Up in up in the end. They're just wrapped around like that and you don't know why. In the middle of the desert. Um and we're gonna find out why. And what happens is Mike, with Gus's blessing, he's gone to the doctor, who if you remember I mentioned is the doctor that was looking after him when Gus was getting killed. Okay? Gus's doctor. From Breaking Bad. Yeah. 
It's the same doctor. Cool. Yeah. He goes to him and he says, our mutual associate says you want a package. And he's obviously referring to drugs. And you, uh, But we we don't know what Mike's plan is. And he goes, yeah, how much do you need? How many grams? And he goes, about this big. And he shows him with his hands how big a package he wants. He goes, how many grams is that? Then he goes, about this big. <laughs> right? <laughs> he gets given uh, some cocaine. He drives out into the middle of the desert. Gets a pair of fresh new sneakers. Jams the bag of cocaine into one sneaker. Ties up the laces. Walks up to the telephone wire and throws them up to the telephone wire. Misses, picks them up, throws them up again. He takes his time, he gets, and he finally gets it. Hooks up on there, and the trap is set. We don't know what the trap is. We don't know who the trap is for, but we know he's after Hector's truck, and we know this is somehow part of it, and we know from the flash forward this is important. So, what happens? And then we get the scene that we, we want to talk about, this amazing scene, which is uh, he is sat up on a dirt ridge with the sniper rifle. Again, that same sniper rifle he bought originally to kill Tuco that he was going to use to kill Hector Salamanca. He's got that sniper rifle ready, aimed, okay? A truck that belongs to Hector Salamanca filled with drugs drives up past underneath the trainers, goes out, pulls over. The guys go out, two guys go out with guns, and he's got his sniper rifle. They haven't driven under the trainers yet. They have. No, they drive under, and then they drive back around. Oh, do they? Yeah, if I remember right. Um, so they drive They drive there, they park. So they're right next to the trainers. They're not under the trainers, but they're next to them. They park, they get out, covered in guns. Mike's got his sniper rifle. We see the sniper pointing at them. It's like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And then Mike just takes the gun, points it in the sky, and fires a bullet. And the two guys, then he puts it back down, looks at the two guys. The two guys immediately drop to the floor. They look around, look around. They've got their guns ready. They're ready to fire everything. They look around, look around. They go, Mike fires a second shot. And they go, maybe it's Hunter's. Fires a third shot. The fourth shot, they go, yeah, yeah, it's Hunter's. They get up, put the guns. They open up another one of those drop-off points in the middle of the desert. They drop their guns in there, close the thing. They get back to the car. As they're going back to the truck, Mike fires a fifth shot at this point they're not even phased by the shot they get in the car and they drive they turn around they drive and as they drive they drive under the trainers and this is where mike gets ready gets the gun puts the sights on the trainers waits 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 as they go underneath fires the trainers the trainers start dropping cocaine all over the back of the truck as they drive past down the steps down the front everything dropping uh cocaine or heroin or whatever it is all down the thing as they drive off Okay, sixth shot. And of course, the drivers don't react to the sixth shot. Okay, here they drive off. Cut to, they're at the border. There's this outside, you know, waiting at the border control. The sniffer dogs are running around. The sniffer dog stops at their truck. They open the truck. It's filled with drugs, right? They get arrested. They get down on the floor. That's it. And that's how he gets Hector. There's no dialogue in that scene. It's not one of the big scenes I described earlier. But it is just excellent writing. It's excellent writing. When you stop and you consider just what they have to do. Like, behind the scenes, to write that scene, it is so brilliant. You have have to be such a good writer to do that behind the scene. Let's break it apart then. Yes. Let's talk about gaps first. Okay, so, first of all, there's no gap. 
And a gap is what? The gap is when a character has an expectation of... They go to do something, there's an expectation that they, if I do this, X will happen. But X doesn't happen. Y happens instead. And because of that, the gap opens up, and we get a rush of insight. That's why Y, of course, was always going to happen, okay? It's how you build story. It's very interesting. Expectation never meets results. That's, that's like the... the one of the fundamental building blocks of story. Yes. If expectation meets result every time, you have a very, very boring story. Yeah, it's just boring. Uh, it's incredibly boring. Every time that happens, they know you have to have turning points. You have to have gaps and all this stuff. And Mike, there's no gap here. It's Mike's point of view. Everything goes exactly as Mike expects it to. Things don't go better than he expected it to. Things don't, don't go worse than he expected it to. It goes exactly as he expected it to. So how do they make it work? Because we don't know what Mike's plan is, right? <laughs> in Ocean's Eleven, we get told the plan so that when things go wrong, we know why they've gone wrong. We understand, right? Hmm. Whenever we know what the characters... If you tell the audience, like, okay, we're going to do X, Y, Z, the audience goes, ha well, we know X, Y, Z isn't going to work. They got to do X, and then suddenly... <gasps> B happened. What no? Like that, right? the, that's how you do it. That's one of one of the conventions of um, particularly of heist stories. Yeah. I know we talked about it in Ocean's Eleven, yeah. but really any criminal undertaking, um, in order to achieve crime X, you need to set the audience up with what the barriers are. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to rob this casino. Well, you can't because all the money's buried underground. Right. There are these lasers exactly. and these attack dogs, etc. Right. etc. Et if, if you don't know how a casino works, you can't understand when it's gone wrong. Right. Right. So you need to understand how it's supposed to play out. We do this, this happens, then we do this, then this happens, and there's our intricate plan. You go, ah, and now you can throw... Like farces work this way, right? The characters yeah. turn to each other and go, "Okay, here's the plan. We do this. Turn around. Oh my god, hide in the closet, right? It's just gone horribly wrong, right? You know exactly what they're trying to do, and we can have fun in seeing how everything's going wrong. Yeah. With this, we don't know what Mike's even planning. We know it involves trainers. We know it involves the desert. The last time anything kid-related was in the desert, Todd shot a kid. Right, in Breaking Bad, right? So it's like, what is going to happen in this desert, right? Um, we know it's important because it got that flash forward at the beginning. And we know that they do that when something's important, right? Mm. And so they give us pieces of what Mike's plan is so that we have to work out what Mike's plan is. And as we see him do it, he doesn't explain anything. We have to work it out. And what that means is you have to be completely invested in the story. Better Call Saul is not written for people who are just watching stuff as they're doing their ironing or, you know, whatever. They're, like they're on Facebook as televisions on or whatever. This is people who are paying attention. They ex The people who write Better Call Saul expect that you know where Saul is going. They expect that you remember Breaking Bad well enough that you know how this show has to end, what people said, what people... For example... Um, there's stuff they do in it that they not only do they can they not do stuff that violates what's coming. They have to do stuff that if they had if it happened in the backstory, they would have mentioned it. Yeah. They can't have a scene happen in Better Call Saul that someone should have referred to in Breaking Bad. That's a really good point we've not made before. Yeah, we've but not they made before on the show. Right? right. Yeah, but that's something that they can't do. Yeah, it's right? a really excellent point. So, um, and also the gas cap thing. I'm pointing this out to Luke uh, of Mike the gas cap there's the, in Breaking Bad there are several scenes where Walt is how is Gus following me and we never find out we just presume Mike's that good now I think we know yeah. 
there's a bug in his gas canister, right? That's how they know where he is all the time. Uh, I don't know if the writers intended that. Uh, I don't think they had any idea that that was the case, but I think once they came up with that for Mike, they went, oh, now that makes sense for why Gus is able to do it, right? Um, so they came up with this magical way, like, what? how can Gus know where people are at all times? Well, we have to come up with an explanation for that, so they came up with one, which is the gas. I'm guessing when they did it to begin, because this is how normal humans would, would work, um is that they would say, okay, the villain is just smart enough, he knows. Like, I, I would have thought they just went like, Gus would just know this stuff, and it's not the focus. Of, it didn't matter. Walt never sat down to work it out. But the writers of but, Breaking but, Bad and Saul aren't normal humans, and no, so maybe but, they have. May, maybe, but, but Mike definitely This is like is the scene work. of Philly with Charlie uh, yeah. in the in the mail room with like strings <laughs> and everything. That That's <laughs> what the Breaking Bad and Saul writer's room looks like. No, Pepe Sylvia! <laughs> All these, yeah. Um, but anyway, so um, uh, so th- the thing about it is, like, uh, we don't know what Mike's plan is, right? But we know Mike's up to something. So we are sitting there paying attention, and the writers expect us to be paying attention. So they will have a scene like this where there is no dialogue. This is what you would call a cinema scene. Mm. The difference typically between cinema and television is television is you can you can follow the story when you're not watching the screen. It's mostly for the ear, right? Cinema, no, it's mostly for the eye. So this kind of stuff is usually not for TV, but audience watching has changed. Now you really pay attention, right? And um, uh, and so they have this scene, and it's just excellent. Unlike the pimento scene, unlike the... Um, I mean, more like the gas canister scene, which, again, has no um, dialogue, right? Yeah. But the gas canister scene, you know what Mike's trying to do, right? You understand it. So there's loads of gaps, right? There's a huge gap, which is the don't note. Then the second gap, there's no bug in the car. Yeah. Right? Huge gaps. Yeah. This, not so, and then we follow what Mike's doing all the way through it. He does this thing, he does that thing, and we get what he's doing. And the gaps are, what's the big gap? It tracks back to Gus. It actually works. And then the next yeah. gap that Gus says, hey, you can carry. You see what I mean? There's constant gaps. What's this wonder- doesn't have one. What's wonderful as well is when the scene closes when they're caught and yes. you realise actually what what it was he was yeah. up to and it all works that insight you get yeah. into his character yes and how smart he is right how much he plans like exactly he knew where the drop was right where the car would be it's, and the only way yeah it's just so the, the gap well, I mean there is a gap from the point of view of uh, the driver's but they're not the ones driving the scene. No. Ironically. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're not the ones... So it, it's not really a gap in that sense. But it's us closing information that we don't have, which is very similar feeling. You couldn't write a whole story like this, I don't think, um, because you'd never have empathy with the main character. <laughs> we already have empathy with the character. We know what he's trying... We don't know the mechanisms of how he's planning to do something, but we know what he wants, etc. So we're right? willing to... We're willing to play this game a bit. Um, it's a bit... It's a, It's closer to Poirot or Sherlock, where they know the answer, but we don't, and we're trying to play along. Okay. It's very similar to that kind of thing. The character knows a lot. The protagonist knows more than we do. They haven't let us in, and we have to play catch-up. We have to work it out with them, mm. right? So he's a bit like a master detective in that sense. And um, and what happens is, with Mike, as you said, we realize all these things. And what I'm trying to point out is, these things don't exist unless a writer puts them there. So they had to stop and go, Mike has to know 
where the drop-off point is for their guns. And we've seen Mike do his own drop-offs out of the way in the middle of nowhere, which now explains why they're so far apart so that people can't track him. Yeah. Right? So he had to know where it was. So he, who knows how many hours he spent. How do you even find out in the middle of the desert there's a bunch of guns? How did he find that? Well, we don't know exactly, but we know, geez, the amount of effort it had to have taken for him to do that. We know he can do it because he's done it himself in Breaking Bad. Mm. So we're going, okay, the amount of tenacity it takes for this guy to do it. The amount, uh, the only other way is he asked someone to tell him, like Gus told him yeah. where their drop-off point was, right? But somehow he had to find that out. He then had to sit there and wait. He had to therefore know all their um, schedule, when they're supposed to get there. Yeah. How long? He then also had to make sure there's no other witnesses around, right? they also are going to do that for him because there's no witnesses anywhere like that. He has to hide his car. He has to prep for this. He has to prep for that. And now he can't miss. Right? He has to actually get it right. And then there's the genius of how do I make it so they don't react to a gunshot? Yeah. Because he has to stop. So, okay. How? Think about it. Like, he goes, okay, I want to get them. How do I get the how do I get the cocaine onto the truck to the sniffer dogs find them? Right? Because they I can't do the thing I did before. I did that before and I got an innocent person killed. Mm. I have to do this in a way that the innocent... I have to make sure the police get the thing. How is the only way to make sure the police get there? Okay, I do it border control. Okay? Because then they're not looking for anyone. They can't be looking. It has to be... You see what I mean? Like, this, it, Mike's given a whole bunch of things. It was like, I can't get caught. They can't be looking for someone who did, the, who did it. Right? Because if they start looking for someone, they'll find someone, right? So they can't be looking for someone. They can't... Uh, it has. To, the police have to find this. No innocent people can die. I'm not killing anyone. Right? Can you imagine the fun in the writer's room where they sit down and they're like, okay... <laughs> this is not going to be fun for writer's room. Because <laughs> they're just going to be looking at whoever's sitting there going with the list of things Mike can't do and go, yeah. why? Why can't Mike just have wings? <laughs> We can do what we want. We're writers. Mike has wings. It's the end of it. He bribes them with cupcakes. <laughs> like you want to be able to do something other than it's like no, no, can't do that. Can't do that. Like they, they you've heard the writers like talk about this. Where they go like, yeah, sometimes we just sit at the writers and go, why have we done this to ourselves? <laughs> why have we created this situation um, that's so difficult for us to solve? But that that point comes back to why we love Saul so much. Like yeah, that, the Breaking Bad is the greatest creative limitation. <laughs> For the, for the, yeah exactly right? so they've got this thing they've got this character who won't do X won't do Y uh, and he has to and, he, and what he's trying to pull off has to fulfil these functions otherwise Mike won't do it because Mike's not that type of person and yet Mike's smart enough and good enough that he would come up with something so what could Mike come up with and so it's like okay I have to get it on the outside oh the sneakers that, okay that works but now how do I get them to not hear the gunshot it's like, do I put the silencer? Do I do that? You can't really silence that. That won't work. What What do I do? It's like, well, instead of hiding the gunshot, why don't I make them hear it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll do... And he's just like, you know, he was going to shoot bullets until they thought it's hunters. He just did it. <laughs> Waited. But it's... <laughs> and then that way, he, when he does he, the sixth one, they don't notice. Yeah, when he does... When he points the gun at the sneaker, that's when your brain clicks into gear and yeah. you realise why he's been firing shots in the owner. Oh, that's... Excellent. Yeah, because at first you think, oh, maybe he's going to kill the drivers. Yeah. But no. 
So, okay, so what's he doing with the gun? What's it, why has he got the gun there? What's the, and why were the sneakers up there anyway? What was... Uh, get well, it. I prefer, just thinking, looking back at those other three scenes you mentioned, the crying one, the um, pimento one, yeah. which I loved, and the gas cap, <laughs> I prefer this hunt scene. Really? To any of those. I really do. I remember watching it and just having having that rush of insight at the end when you realise what oh, he's I, I don't, I think okay. I like the gas cap the most. Really? Because you get both. You get him trying to work it out, then once he's worked it out, his brilliant plan. Of I, I, The whole, I'm going to drain one bug and replace it so I can use your bug to track you. And it's like, jeez, Mike. <laughs> and when he's sitting there, and he again, he doesn't say anything. He's just sitting in his room, and he's hooked up the bug to a, ra- a walkie-talkie and is listening to the radio. I'm like, what is he doing? So, like, oh, he's draining the back, he's draining the power from it. I'm like, I wish I was this smart. <laughs> I wish I could come up with a, a tent. Like I'm, th- I'm, I'm imagining like even if I was in the writers' room, how does Mike get out of this? I'm like, I don't know. Wings. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't solve this. It'd be like I'd be in the, I'd be in the room just going, guys. I'm sorry. I have to quit because I'm just a drag factor in this room. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm dead weight. I cannot. Do- and they say no, no. You, you. It's really helpful. That last idea, space cats. Like that, that got that out of the rest of us, you know. All your stupid ideas, like no, I guys, really, you don't need me around to say Astro Chimp. Like that's not that's not helping anyone. I'll see you guys this later. This is the worst application to work for Vince Gilligan I have ever. I can't. Seen. I look at. I'm just like I don't know how. How? I mean, I look. I, I've I've joked about this before, but I'm the kind of guy who would be in the Breaking Bad writers room going, "Do we have to give Walt cancer?" Or someone goes, I. although, to be fair, in my defence, if I was in the medical school writer's room, it's like, why is Chuck a shut? I'm like, maybe he's allergic to electricity. I like that idea. No, that was a joke. That that was a joke. No, no, we're going with that. Really? You're going with one of my ideas? He's allergic to electricity, but I just... That's that, a bass idea. That's a stupid bass idea. That's, my te- that's always my terror, that when I come up with a stupid idea, someone else will take it seriously, and it turns out to work, because then my barometer of what's good and bad is completely shot. <laughs> I don't know what anything means anymore. So, how about Astro Chimps? Great idea! Let's do Astro Chimps. Really? Are you guys pranking me? Anyway, so, um, I, yeah, I just think, like... You, you watch that scene play out and you have to realise like even if you want like in Ocean's Eleven or whatever to do a heist you have to make the plan the plan has to work yeah it's like Gruber in Die Hard the plan has to work yeah then you can mess around with it so you have to create a brilliant plan and Mike's plan here like the Ocean's Eleven plan is excellent Gruber's plan is excellent but this you know the famously Die Hard 3 that plan is so good the FBI questioned the screenwriter like, are you planning on doing this really yeah 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 that's how good it was because it would actually work and the FBI was like yeah we you aren't actually planning on robbing Wall Street are you it's like no because this would work really aren't you the FBI aren't you supposed to this is how we stop crime we we find the criminal There's... hope they've pitched it and then ask them not to do it nicely so, it's just like... so uh uh, Hannah, my wife, where, works in um, insurance, and one of the interesting things that she's uh, been involved with in the past is working for companies that like or talk, 
being aware of disaster scenarios. So the insurance world has to be aware of disaster scenarios, right. things that could possibly go wrong. Right. Um, and s- they have to conceive of these ideas that could possibly go wrong in order to therefore insure against them. And you know where they get some ideas from? Hollywood. I would have thought so. Yep. So it'll be movies, it'll be reactions like that. <laughs> what if? What if? What if a bunch of German terrorists take over the building and try to steal the bonds? Okay, let's insure against them. We'll call this the McLean insurance. <laughs> um, i never questioned the names. That'll be some homework. Oh, yeah. The, I wonder then, if they do name them after. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> if you have the opportunity I'm calling it the McLean thing we need to give it a serious name we call this we'll the call Die Hard it. Protocol that might be too much <laughs> the Gruber Protocol the Gruber Protocol it's like if you are taken over by terrorists we have that covered you'll have your own McLean lickety split uh, anyway. anyway anyway so you have to come up with these incredible plans so Mike's plan is just excellent it, that's an excellent plan I don't care if the writers didn't come up with it. They read somewhere, like in a newspaper, that someone did it. Like, it doesn't matter where you found it. It's just excellent writing, and it's think... and we and we get so much from Mike. And the thing is, it's it because it's not like a super exciting scene. It's not a big scene. It's not a major acting scene. It's one of those. But it, that little scene to, is so consistent with the character. It's so well done, and it's the writing is invisible. That's that's what's so magical that's about that a scene. Really good way Do you know what I mean? It. The it's, is invisible. it's invisible, and so people don't recognise how well written that is. Which is why I think, like this podcast, you know, is like what we're trying to do with it is like talk about the writing of things, right? Yeah. How you write these things. Like that scene is a brilliantly written scene. It's it's it, that that you do not need dialogue and speeches, high themes, none of that stuff makes something well written. Right, that's not what makes anything well written. You, the dialogue has to be well written. The yeah. themes have to be well executed, etc. This is just great writing, and you don't notice it because it has none of the um, the superficial traits of great writing. Right, but it is great writing. Hmm. It's great character writing. What are the? Superficial- it's character. You understand? Like all of this comes from Mike's character. This is a plan Mike pulls off. This is not how Walt would do it. Yeah. Right, Walt wouldn't do. <laughs> but interestingly, like this, this I was thinking as you were talking earlier, the intelligence of we know Walt's intelligent because yes. all, all those wonderfully you, smart things. By the way, do you know? By the way, do you know why Walt wouldn't do this? This plan would never be something Walt did. Because he wouldn't be able to fire the gun. Mm-mm, that's not why. He'd learn how to fire the. Gun. Oh, because he wouldn't want to go unnoticed, right? That's not it either. <laughs> okay. He would never let the police arrest them. He wouldn't leave it up to the police to do their job. He would have to see the whole thing through. Right. When he steals the meth, the big tank of tanker of meth from Mike and Jesse from yeah. break, breaking from the radiator, what does he do? He drives it to his car wash. Hides it out in his car wash. He won't let someone else be responsible because he's Walt. He's the smartest guy. If he trusts it to anyone else, it will only go wrong because I'm Walt. Mike, on the other hand, knows the police will do their job. Right? Yeah. Walt doesn't hire someone else to do things for him when it matters. When it's something that matters, he doesn't. But the intelligence of Walt 
and Mike yes. and Gus as well. Yes. It is just ludicrous. And different. And different. They don't have the same intelligence. No. Mike's more tactical. And pragmatic and logical yeah. and everything. Um, practical. And Gus is Machiavellian. Yeah. Uh, but Walt, Walt is scientific. Yeah. His is mechanical. I do X and Y must happen. Yeah. He's not an improviser. No. And uh, what he can draw on is very interesting. He see, he can't draw on other people because he doesn't understand other people. Mm. Mike knows how bureaucracies work, how people work. He understands how these things work. So he can do these things. That you know what I mean? pimento, the pimento scene really... Um, yeah. Uh, Walt could uh, never do the pimento no, no, scene. No, no, no. Right? Aside how... from the physical bit, but when he, when he says, well, I researched it. Nacho. He doesn't, yeah, I researched yeah. Nacho. He doesn't want this plan to go badly. Yeah. Therefore, I'm not going to need a gun. Yeah. He's going to be fine. Right? Yeah. That's brilliant. Whereas Walt's version is, say my name. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's Walt's equivalent. Walt's equivalent is he storms in, everyone does what I say because I'm Walt. He's such an arrogant jerk. Right? So, but Mike doesn't have that. No. And Gus doesn't have that. No. Right? Gus just doesn't behave that way either. So all these characters say they're very intelligent, but they're intelligent in different ways. They're character specific. And so here is a scene where a guy is shooting a gun it tricks a bunch of people into getting arrested with it and it's all built out of Mike's character and all that writing that we've spent the last 50 minutes expressing and all the setups that are required to get you on board with Mike which was the seasons of Bedical Saw the consistent writing yeah. the motivation to get him to this point all that stuff and it and you and it's just that's the that's the discipline and the standard of writing that's involved as opposed to he just gets a gun does this thing like it's just you know it's like it's such good writing and you just you don't see because it's as I've, I I've pointed this out before you want to you want an Oscar right for acting you have a scene where you have give a speech yeah no one is going to get an Oscar for a silent scene because the Oscars are superficial and they think that dialogue is what's important right and writers often think dialogue is what is important because Shakespeare wrote a lot of dialogue and so they think as a result dialogue is what matters. But you look at people like Akira Kurosawa, you look at the, particularly in Japan, uh, you look at the great cinema writers, they, they didn't write dialogue unless it was absolutely necessary, and when they did, it was very bare bones, you know? Tell the story, I'm sure we did this off mic, do correct me if it was on mic last week, the Goodwill Hunting scene at the end. Oh, no, no, you mean, um, not Good Will Hunting, you mean Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I didn't sorry. say this on screen. So there's a scene in Dead Poets Society. Um, spoilers for Dead Poets Society, if you haven't seen Dead Poets Society. They're all dead. <laughs> uh, Dead Poets Society um, is a story, it's in boarding school in the 50s. Um, one of the kids kills themselves, and uh, he's basically pushed to suicide by his very uh, autocratic father. And um, his roommate and best friend has a scene. Uh, and Ethan Hawke had this speech, and it was this big speech. He was 17, wasn't he? He was like 17 or something. He had this yeah. big speech that was all on the nose dialogue. It was the father's fault. And he goes to the director, Peter Weir, and Peter Weir's a master director, and he says to him, I can't do this scene. Because Ethan Hawke understood. He says, all on the nose. I can't do this scene. It's This speech doesn't work. And Peter Weir said, that's fine. You just have to make me think you gave it. Okay, um, which is a brilliant bit of directing. He's basically saying, take the scene and put it in the subtext. If it's on the nose, take it in the sub. So what does Ethan Hawke do? Ethan Hawke runs out into the snow like he's supposed to. He starts crying and bawbling. Bor- but as he does, he doesn't say the speech. He just 
bumbles his way through it and he goes it wasn't it wasn't his fault it wasn't his father and he just screams Neil and runs off into the distance and that's the take that they use right and it's just like he's right both of them were right Peter Weir made the right choice when he when he came to him and Ethan Hawke was right with that and it's like you don't now that scene however you're not going to get an Oscar for no you're going to get the scene for something else the Oscar for something else but you're not going to get the Oscar for that that because people think writing is great dialogue and stuff like the um, I mean you know I brought that up last week off mic with Luke because we are talking about Blade Runner and the famous scene with Rutger Hauer giving that speech at the end, and you read the original screenplay version, and the speech is really over the top, and so on, and so he just, without telling anyone, just cut it to, like, just a few bare sentences, and I've seen things, and people just love that scene, and that great speech, and that's his great acting speech, but what he actually did was he cut most of the lines out, and put it into how he looks at Deckard when he says it. Mm. Do you remember? He looks at him with a knowing wink of, I've lived more than you. And then gets really sad when he realises, and yeah, he's dead. And he's, there's no point in killing Deckard. Because he's not a killer. There's no point. You know? He's going to die now. Deckard can't get... You know, right? So it's great. So it's that great speech. So this whole thing of, like, dialogue, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it's not that it's not important or anything. It's just that great writing is great writing. It's great writing, right? And it's just um, this scene here with Mike. It's like this is never going to get any what? any real accolade or anything. It's not like the gas canister scene, which is really sort of exciting and mysterious. And all. this is just really bare bones. Expectation meets result, and yeah. If wow. you could boil it down, then what would you take away from this scene? Oh, that I'm not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not good enough to write this scene. And you would give that message to our listeners? Yeah. Just give up, give up, uh, watch Better Call Saul and accept that writing has finished. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Better Call Saul 1, you can all go home. Exactly. Um, I I would just sit, I I would just, all I would do is I would say, uh, it's going to be the situation whenever we do Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad or whatever. It's always going to be the same thing, which is like, it's just like, the standard is this. This is the standard I, of writing you're trying to reach. Can I write? And you can't necessarily reach it because you aren't a team of writers who've been writing consistently mm. for Breaking Bad for six years and Better Call Saul for another three. You know, you haven't done this for ten years straight. Can I instead but then raise a practical trying. exercise? Yes. So, particularly if you're a uh, crime writer, and I know we have a bunch of uh, mm. listeners who are crime writers, but um, if you are, a good exercise as a writer is to come up with, like, your own vault. I don't mean like, um, um, I don't mean a literal vault. Although it could be if you're doing, if you're writing a heist or something. Like oh, you that. mean to crack? To crack, yeah. Come yeah. up with a, an impregnable vault um, and then try and break it. Another thing to keep in mind when you can plaster this on your corkboard or whatever, right? Your writing desk or whatever is this: my character should never say something. That, he, that my character knows and doesn't need anyone else to know. Right? Mike doesn't say things for our benefit or anyone else's. If Mike knows something, he doesn't say it. Yeah. He just knows it. So how does the audience know what he's doing? Through his actions. We understand. And so when you realise dialogue is action, it's just verbal action, it's not physical, yeah. you realise it's the same principle, which is 
you understand what a character wants and does because of how they choose to act, not because of what they say. So when you have your characters, like in your high scene or the vault, whatever, you have your Danny Ocean, you have your Hercule Poirot, you have your uh, whoever, you have your your you know your Claire Dunphy from Modern Family. It doesn't matter who. Mm. They know things, and they do not need to tell people things. People in marriages do not need to explain to each other rituals of their marriage. People who work together don't need to explain the rituals of their work. People who do things don't need to constantly explain it, right? Your audience might not know, but if you, you don't need to tell them. They will pick it up. Trust that your audience is smart enough to be paying. If they're not paying attention, writing a worse show isn't going to make them pay attention, right? So you write a be- <laughs> the best show you can and hope they pick up on it. That's such a good point on exposition. Yeah, it's, like, if, it's if, true. If they're not paying attention, writing a worse show is not going to make them Yeah, you want to demand their attention, not beg for it. Yeah. So, so the thing is, like, Mike doesn't say any of this stuff because he doesn't need to. Hmm. So we have to pick it up. We have to pick up the slack. We have to work it out. We have to pay attention. We go, oh, I get it, right? Um, and so it's the same thing. So you're writing a scene and I, I mean, off, I think it's a really good thing. It's like, how much of the scene can I do without anyone saying anything? Mm. And the reason that's a good thing is not because, um, you, you're trying to make it minimalistic or anything like that. It's like, you're trying to get to the actual, like character. People don't need to say what's going on because the first thing you do as a writer is you start writing in the character's mouths, what you are currently thinking about the scene. This is where a lot of speech writing comes from. Mm. Writers are trying to work out the story themselves. So they put it in the mouths of the characters and the characters argue back and forth. And it's like the writer is arguing with themselves what the scene's about. I mean, I do this all the time. I know that's a first draft situation when I have my two characters yelling about a thing, right? And they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's like, this is fine as a sketch, but this cannot be considered. All this dialogue, I have to remind myself, no matter how good a line might be, it's got to all get cut. Yeah. I'm not, as a matter of principle, I won't let any of it in because I know all of this is generating from the wrong place. It's not generating from the characters. It's generating from me trying to work out what's going on. So you want to try and, I, I think a really good helpful thing for someone who's particularly who talks a lot in real life is really good to focus on just no dialogue, cut all of it back as much as possible. Right. And then you can start putting, layering it back on. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things like he he knows how he's doing it, so he doesn't need to say anything. Hmm. And then as a result, you have to focus on what the character does and doesn't know. And then as a result, you start building things, right? So you you're trying to you're trying to get that that you're trying to create a process that will produce better work as opposed to you know, just hoping that you will produce it. You have to try and create a situation where it's like, okay, if that's the standard, what do I have to do to try and reach that standard more often? And it's like, okay, to reach the standard of Mike, I have to cut out dialogue. I have to kind of try and constantly remove all the dialogue and really stop and think, what would this character know and do that I don't? And how would this character sort this out and so on? And then remind yourself that no matter how good an idea is, it has to be in character. Um, and so, you know. Well. Be as good as medical. So you look like you've talked yourself into depression about. Not depression. Writing. No, no, not depression. It's more just like uh, it's it's just um, it's just so well done. And you kind of like I it's kind of 
it's what I really enjoy doing. I actually really like those creative limitations. It's not yeah. depression at all. It's just oh, no, like, no, I like it's it's somber. It's it's solemn. Yeah. It's solemnity. It's just like oh, this feels to be at peace, sitting down trying to crack that puzzle of <laughs> what what you should do. So maybe I wouldn't be so bad in the writers' room. I just wouldn't be able to come up with the answers. I just enjoy not being able. Astro cats. Astro cats. That'll be our next episode. Astro cats. By the way, another call. Um, in the coming weeks, we are doing our. Attack on Titan season two <laughs> episode. So yes. if you haven't yet watched it, if you're partially through season one, you need to catch up now. Is another call to um, basically say hurry up, because yes. in uh, maybe three weeks, two three weeks, yes. uh, we'll, we're going to be putting that out. So, yes. Yeah. And uh, and get up to date on the good place. <laughs> yeah, another one. Good place. Okay. Cool. Skidoo. Bye.